is that little Panagos? Yeah, she's. Uh, <laughs> I record in her bedroom, and uh, I think she has made a trip to Poop Town. Oh. <laughs> Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's full list for you better believe it. New comics on sale May twenty seventh, twenty twenty. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M, and I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, it is a glorious day. You know, I was thinking about this um, as we were starting to put this episode together. It feels like the last week of a year. You know those weeks when we release only like a handful of comics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, they're just bangers. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. It's a, it's a heck of a good week. It is very exciting. If, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, we're going to talk about some new comics. Uh, that's what we, we like to do. And it's been a little while since we've had new comics. So comic shops out there, go support them. Please pick up these new books that we tell you about. But that's not all we have this episode because we have a humdinger of a guest. Isn't that right, Tucker? That's right. We have the one and only Dan Slott. He's here to talk about Silver Surfer, the first volume. Yeah, so we're mix- it's like the it's like chocolate and peanut butter. This episode, we're getting a little bit of great reading club, a lot of it actually, because it's Dan Slott, and he's got tons of insight and stories and just warm, wonderful feelings about so awesome. one of I think our favorite runs of all time yep. in Silver Surfer, and then new comics for us to talk about. Let's start things off with the new comics, and then we'll get into Dan Slott after that. First things first, uh, Amazing Spider-Man number forty-three, written. By Nick Spencer, penciled by Ryan Otley, with inks by Cliff Rathburn and Ryan Otley, and then colors by Nathan Fairbain and D. Cunniff, um, with letters by Joe Caramagna from Virtual Calligraphy. There's five issues this week, right? And I think they're all worth picking up, even if you are not a regular for any of these series. It was something like this feeling I got is like, hey, there's only five issues this is a perfect time to maybe try something new. You're supporting a local comic shop, you know, whatever it is. And then in particular, this amazing Spider-Man issue is so great. Tucker, do you, it's been a little while. Do you remember the last issue of this series? I was trying to think about this before. So issue 42 was about Gog, the, the monster, right? The, the alien monster that grows and shrinks. And it was that, beautiful heartbreaking story and issue 42 is maybe my favorite run of this series by nick spencer and company and then 43 man so good well that's the thing that's why it was a little tricky for me to remember because nick does this amazing thing where he he'll write just this these kind of one-off like perfectly encapsulated little stories about a character he's done it throughout this entire run it's one of my favorite things about this run of amazing spider-man I cheated because I definitely looked at my <laughs> comics and to see the other Gog issue, which was 42. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that in my head. So ha ha ha. I win. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this one so good. It's, you know, this issue, you, you follow Gog, um, who's this sometimes giant alien monster is rampaging in New York City. It's, you know, all this great stuff. You got Spidey and Boomerang. Um, it, it's wonderful. It is big, fun, Spidey action. And the thing, one of the things that really hit me in this issue was, man, Ryan Otley was born to draw Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, oof. He, he had, there's this one simple panel in, I don't know, one of the first 10 pages or so, where it's just corner, like bottom right of a page. Spidey's in mid-leap. He's got webs in his hand and, and they're all around him. 
And it's got this like 90s vibe to it in all the best ways, like a little bit of McFarlane, a little bit of Eric Larson, really explosive Mark Bagley bits, like just feels so dang perfect. Yeah, I, I it's that thing where when Ryan first started with Amazing Spider-Man, you're like, you know, given all of his work in the past, you were like, oh, you did, duh, oh, duh, of course, Ryan Otley is going to start working on Amazing Spider-Man because he, he, you know, there's just something about the way that that his angles are, the way that Spidey moves, it just makes perfect sense. And when it when it hits when it kind of hits a fever pitch, you know, it, it, like like it does in this issue, it's you know, it's that realization all over again. It's so awesome. Yeah, and then the ending of this one is, I mean, it was great. It was the way that I want this story to end and surely because it's this wonderful sweet ending nothing bad will happen down the line to these characters and i won't be very upset with everybody involved in this uh yeah i'm i'm sure uh definitely um uh so that's what we have for uh, amazing spider-man this week and then uh, next up we have a new issue of avengers just like you were saying ryan it is uh, uh, just punch after punch after punch, and that has multiple meanings when it comes to this issue. This is Avengers number 33. It is by Jason Aaron and, hello, Javier Garon. Um, what a delight to see Javier Garon being brought into the Avengers fold here. Um, I'll talk about that more in a sec. Colors on this issue are by Jason Keith, and letters are by VCs Corey Pettit. Tucker, wait, before you keep going... In my brain, when you say Jason Aaron and Javier Garon, I the what the the vision in my head is of Mick Jagger doing a strut across the stage because it's just like <laughs> the perfect creative team. It is just like yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It. Um, uh, this is super cool though, specifically because this is the start of a new uh, story arc called the Age of Khonshu, which, uh, as you might imagine, brings Moon Knight into the fold with Avengers. It's one of those things that you might not expect right off the bat, but if you've been reading Jason Aaron's run on Avengers here, you know it makes perfect sense because he's been playing with these kind of mystical sides of the universe. He's been introducing certain corners of the Marvel Universe that you wouldn't automatically associate with an Avengers book. There are threats. There are other characters that, you know, when you think of Avengers, you think of big, concussive, like, pugnacious, like, giant fights that the Avengers, like, the only kind of fight that the Avengers can take on. But what's been really cool about his run is that he's been introducing so many different things like occultish things and we've been like uh you know we've been across like realms of reality and so many different things that the avengers aren't necessarily built to take on which is what's so cool about it which is what makes it so exciting to see these characters either try and figure it out themselves or bring others into the fold to help them out um and so here it is so awesome that we start um with a throwdown it's one of those things never knew i wanted it until i saw uh and then it's so so cool we have moon knight who is essentially like he's like meditating outside the mystical city of kunlun and of course iron fist comes to meet him there what we get then is one of the coolest throwdowns that i've seen in this avengers run so far and that is saying a lot i i love the the way that Jason Aaron writes Moon Knight, it's one of those kind of like matches made in heaven. Like, of course, it's going to be a perfect matchup here. And the way it's visualized, it's, you know, uh, shout out to Javier Grone because it is 
Um, it really lands. It is so, so cool. I don't want to talk too much about what happens as the fight continues because it is just awesome. But Javier Garon for me has taken every single step he's taken up in the echelons of, of the Marvel Universe in going on to a bigger book and a bigger book and a bigger book, bigger titles, bigger characters, whatever. You really feel like he's seizing the moment. He is fully saying, this is my chance with this character. This is my chance on this book. I'm not going to hold anything back. Um, and that feels like the perfect en- encapsulation of what what he's doing in that fight scene. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's not even just that fight scene. It's like it sort of escalates. It's almost like where you talked about Javier, like building and building and building this story builds and builds and builds, which I absolutely love. And I love that this issue gives you like, here's Moon Knight and you thread through to find out if you don't know who Moon Knight is and you're an Avengers reader, an Avengers fan, you're going to get a sense of like, oh, Moon Knight is so many things. And like, you've got the Fist of Khonshu, which is the Kung Fu part. You got Mr. Knight, who is like the cool, suave, like badass in the suit dude. You've got the caped version. You've got all these, like Moon Knight has many, many iterations. Um, It's, this issue (laughs) ruled so hard. (laughs) Yeah, it's just so well done. It's one of those things that I, I can't wait to see how we escalate from here. Yeah. In some ways, uh, this reminded me of a Grant Morrison issue of uh, he did a a run for our distinguished competition of JLA uh, about a certain character with a cape and a cowl taking down an entire team. And this is uh, like a similar thought (laughs) way of, of how this would happen in the Marvel Universe. And it's really, really fun. Man, I love this issue so much. I can't wait for more of this. Uh, and then then from those two issues, you get Spider-Man, you get Avengers. Now, this week, we get Marauders number 10, which has been one of our stalwart favorites, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And um, man, this one is really... I just love this series so much. Uh, we open up, we've got Forge and Tempo. Tempo, I was just like... What is happening? Tempo, like she was like a villainous mutant in the 90s, worked, um, you know, she was not a huge player, but seeing her here, really great. Um, they, they worked together to create the world's greatest whiskey. Aged 50 years in a matter of days. That is the true power of Krakoa. <laughs> and I, my wife is a big, uh, she's she's got a, a good taste for fine bourbon and whiskey and rye and all that stuff so i very much appreciate this uh this idea here um we spent a lot of time talking about javier garon but stefano caselli oh man the what this dude it is this this issue is incredibly good looking it's so awesome he yeah his uh he was doing secret warriors i believe Dude was always good, and it's, it's again, it's like putting in those reps, doing the work, building, building, building to the point where you see him here, he's just yep. like, you know, breaking through all the the blocks in one punch. So good. And the way that Stefano specific, like the whole thing is incredible, from like these super tiny, you know, like detailed close ups to huge, like wide shot kind of action happening here, but. The way that Stefano draws Bishop specifically is so awesome. And I'm just immediately like, 
I need a Bishop limited series with Stefano Caselli as the artist. That's all I know. I don't know who writes it. I don't know anything about it, but I need that because it's just so tonally perfect. It's so detailed. It's so like, oh man, it's, it's, it's all there. It's so awesome. Hell yeah. Um, there's this issue also has two really interesting letters in the issue, like written prose pieces. Um, one is from Kate pride to nightcrawler, which is, you know, great. They're like, think about their relationship, their history. They go back so long. It's really emotional. And then you get a draft of a letter that Kurt writes to Kate, but it's written after she was killed and it crushed me. It's like, reminds you that there's something up with with her and she couldn't get to Krakoa and now she can't be resurrected like what is going on it was wonderful but also like anyone who's a Cape Pride fan that's gonna get you man what a time what a time uh it's also very satisfying in this issue because the Marauders there's this all the stuff that's been going on and and all the bad stuff finally getting their revenge on on the bad guys felt so gratifying and so fulfilling because we were talking about this a couple months ago of like we were given the promise that like this would be a golden age for the mutants and everybody would be happy and everybody would be like doing great stuff and be living their best lives and it's been brutal so to see the x-men and the marauders here get a win was wonderful Oh, yeah, completely. Um, and, and hey, now going from Krakoa, we visit a galaxy far, far away with Star Wars Dr. Afra number one. It's written by Alyssa Wong with art by Marika Cresta, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, this is a, a an issue and a book that I've really been looking forward to for a long time. Really excited about this creative team to see the energy that they're going to bring to this uh, book and this character. Obviously, uh, Cy Spurrier had a uh, incredible definitive run with this character in really solidifying Dr. Aphra as as much a staple of the Star Wars galaxy as anyone else. And it's it's one of those things where, you know, now that we've had a little bit of space, a little time to take stock of what that run meant and uh, the work that was put in, it's pretty incredible to see to see the fan response at large in general and and just know that that was generated by the comics to see how much love that Dr. Aphra has from Star Wars fans is really, really cool. And so it made me even more excited to see another creative team jump on board and uh, put their spin on the character. That's something that's always so exciting. You know, what makes Spider-Man so great, for example, is that you can, you know, you can revisit Spider-Man and see how malleable he is to see how many different creators have put their spin on that character and to see um, all the different colors of who that character is come forward. So in that same exact way, I was really excited to see how Alyssa Wong was going to bring out different different colors in Dr. Aphra. And that's exactly what we get. We start the story on Hoth uh, at Echo Base um, because I believe 
um, uh, Star Wars Empire Ascendant, number one, that was the issue where um, Star Wars the Main Series and um, uh, I think Darth Vader and Dr. Effer, they all kind of converged uh, into that one shot that came out at the end of last year, really primed us for this new era of post-Empire Strikes Back Star Wars comics, which is what we've been exploring in Star Wars, the flagship series, um, uh, which is so incredible. I'm such a big fan of, written by Charles Soule, which is what we've been just dipping our toe into with um, with Greg Pox, uh, Darth Vader. Uh, and similarly, now we're getting into a post-Empire world with Dr. Afra, And it's so cool. It is so, um, it feels so fresh. It feels so new in the best ways. But at the same time, it's that character that I love. It's that character that we love. It's the, you know, Dr. Afra who, you know, you can say has the best intentions, but will nevertheless get into a ton of different uh, uh, problems and sticky situations, nevertheless, which is, you know, why we love her so much. As well, on top of that, uh, so many different new characters in here, which is super exciting. I also want to say a special shout out to Valentina Reminar for a gorgeous cover. I love this cover so much. And really, it's like this cover that, as much as uh, anything, made me excited to get to know all these supporting characters because they're all on there. Uh, and it looks great. And uh, yeah, couldn't be more excited for where Star Wars is going from here on heck yeah and then rounding out this wonderful week of new books we get venom number 25 written by donny cates art by the master mark bagley inks by andy owens colors by frank martin letters by vcs clayton cowles and there's a two-page montage sequence by ryan stegman jp meyer and frank martin and there's a backup story written by david michelinie penciled by ron Lim, inks by jp meyer colors by eric arcinega and letters by vcs clayton cowles tons of content big big thing what is really cool about this is this is kind of a great starter issue if you've not read venom you can read this get the whole gist of the last you know two years or so of venom comics boom you are in um but it's also the first few pages are straight on close-ups of eddie brock's face talking to the camera discussing who and what he is it's raw, it's emotional, it reminds you not only how great Donnie has become um, as a writer and he's so young and he has so much ahead of him and he's got such a great handle on Eddie Brock and this character and everything, but just how masterful Mark Bagley is at taking something so simple as a close-up of a face and just turning it into incredibly engaging little images like the you just you follow along you see the little ticks the little changes the the subtle the subtleties of the acting here it's magnificent <laughs> there's uh there's also this i pulled out a line uh, a caption um that reminded me why i love comics and it's quote and this is eddie saying quote so yeah my son had just remote plotted my symbiote and turned it into a tyrannosaurus rex and i was being controlled by the carnage symbiote and we were fighting to the death on a deserted island <laughs> Boom. It's comics. That's the story. That's why everything's so great. It is fantastic. Uh, the whole thing is, man, it's real good. It's, uh, it's really, really wonderful stuff. 
great issues all around this week. Totally. Uh, we also have some new issues on Marvel Unlimited. You've got Absolute Carnage number five, so you can see the wrap up of that. Deadpool number one, Fantastic Four, 2099 and 2099 Alpha number one, and plenty more, as well as some old school issues of Marvel Team Up, 41 through 45, and issue number 52. All of those are wonderful comics. And Tucker, you know what else is a wonderful comic? Silver Surfer. <laughs> so I think it's about time we bring in Mr. Dan Slott and talk about Silver Surfer. Dan, thank you for taking the time to, to talk with Tucker and I. Oh, I can't. I'm, it feels like I'm doing something marvelly with people. It's nice, right? <laughs> Magical I, people through the screen. <laughs> The best part is you don't have your camera on, but I know you probably just did a thing with your hands where you like did little wiggly fingers because I've known you for a long time. That's a classic dance slot move. I did. <laughs> I, oh, my God. Is, is this on? Are you using spy tech? I thought I had this off, man. No, I've, I've got my uh, I've got my quarantine hair going. You know, it's it's scary. It looks like a duck's butt. <laughs> Tucker, did you shave your head? I did last night. Yeah. Wow. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I feel like um, like a like a, a prison inmate in like 1924. Because <laughs> I have like a shaved head but a mustache. I don't know. It's just a look I'm not used to. Um, I I did something similar. I took off the mighty beard. And it's almost all back. <laughs> oh, man. It is a special skill. It really is. I wish I had that skill. Uh, yeah, I would like it if it was on top of my head. Uh, one of the fun things, in our, our, the first time Mike, and, Mike Allred and I were working on Surfer together was the Marvel Now short story, which is in the collection. Uh, it was a precursor to... And it's in the first trade in issues one through five. Um, and we wrote this story to be like a prototypical Silver Surfer story. So you got a taste of what the, the book was going to be like. But it was told from a point of view when Dawn and Surfer are already, uh, you know, working uh, already out there in the cosmos and having adventures together. And issue one of Surfer is about how they meet. Um, but one of the gags is... All when they land on this planet and Silver Surfer silvers down to fit in, um, the reason he has to silver down is all these aliens are freaking out and pointing at him, going, "Oh, it's the Herald! It's the Herald!" And they're running away. And Don, you figure out as the reader, Don doesn't know what that means, and that's like, Ugh. that's like a big secret that plays out in the second Silver Surfer trade. Like he'd hidden that part of his past from her. Um, and he silvers down to fit in, and she looks at him, and she's looking at him going, why they called you Harold? That's a terrible name for you. <laughs> like, you're like, why would somebody, like, Harry? You don't look like a hair because he's bald. And and Surfer's all embarrassed, and he's like, Dawn, I possess the power cosmic. I could grow hair if I wanted to. And then there's a panel, and Dawn goes, you're trying to right now, aren't you? <laughs> and he's like, come along, Dawn. <laughs> And you see that it's one of his powers. He cannot, Norrinrad cannot grow hair. And this, this three-panel sequence for the uh, 29 issues uh, Mike Allred and I did together was the only squabble we ever had. 
where <laughs> these three panels, we got along great. We were, you know, we were one gestalt being happily working on Silver Surfer. That was our one butting of uh, bald heads because um, Mike wanted the joke to be little bits of stubble growing on Surfer's head. Like he tried really hard in like a Play-Doh barber set. <laughs> just little tiny, like, nee, 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 nee. We're going to. And I was like, no, it's funnier if he stays bald. And Mike really did not like this. <laughs> and I was like, just give in. Give in to me. Do this. And he's like, fine. I promised him that eventually we'd do a story where a surfer grew a beard. Um, and that we hit that around issue uh, 12 of the first run. And that's why that beard uh, sequence is in there in the strange new life of Norrin Rad issue. Um, that was fun. So th that's that's all Mike and I ever clashed over. We had a harmonious 29 issues. It was just a big love fest. I couldn't wait to see pages. He couldn't wait to see script. Uh, we just loved working on this book. And that was our only uh, our only little squabble. When I, you know, reading this the first time and then rereading parts of it now, it reminded me we were at a creative retreat, must have been 2013 or so or 14. And uh, I remember we were, it was, it was like a lunch break or something. And you came over to me and you were like, right, right, right. I, I, I have to tell you, but I can't tell you. You can't tell anyone. I can't tell you. And, you know, you were very excited. You were talking because you had just like, you were working either working on your ideas for silver surfer or had just gotten it approved. It, like it wasn't public in the room yet. You were so excited about it. Um, and it, you know, reminded me of those moments and then reading it here. Like I, it feels like you had the beginning and the end, the entirety of the story in your head before you even put down anything on the page. Yeah, there was um, were spoiler alerts for people who haven't read The Surfer. Um, there's a sequence in issue one where uh, Don Greenwood is taking giving people a tour of the Greenwood Inn. And she lists all these famous people who've stayed there, like kind of bragging, like, oh, if you when you stay here at the Greenwood Inn, we've been around for decades. And we've had people like Albert Einstein and Howard Stark and all these different people have stayed here for, you know, over like enjoying the New England, you know, coast. And one of the people she mentions is this guy, Norville Rappaport. So she mentions like three famous people at Norville Rappaport and the, the, everyone thought it was a joke because the person on the tour goes, who's Norville Rappaport? And she goes, oh, you wouldn't know him. He's not famous. And everyone thought that was the gag. And Brevoort, when he read the original script, he went, Norville Rappaport? That's Norrin Rad in the past, isn't it? Like, you're going to do a story where he changes his name and it's Norrin Rad because Brevoort knows the way I think. And he's like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to time travel we're going to we're going to hit that beat like around the end of the series when we hit our end. So yeah, we we sown the seed for that in issue 1. Um very very happy about that. And there was one big secret that was hidden in Silver Surfer from day 1. Um I'm not going to fully reveal it in case people want to go into Marvel Unlimited and read the whole run, but nice. there was there was something about Dawn's iconic dress. She has a her her father to he was nervous the night his um twin baby girls were born that he wouldn't be able to tell them apart so he got one a bumblebee onesie and one a ladybug bun, uh onesie and these 
pattern stuck with them their whole life. So Dawn's sister Eve always dresses in black and yellow stripes, and Dawn always dresses in red with black dots. And this became a, a running bit with the ladybug pattern. Um, and there's a big payoff to it eventually. And I didn't tell Mike Allred. Um, I I even did like that magician psychics trick when we were uh, putting together the um, the the character designs, where I'm like, I, you know, maybe if she was wearing a pattern, <laughs> you know, what about Pug- Pug- it out, So let's try different colors. And he was doing different colors. You know, you know, if we did it uh, red and black, it could be like a ladybug thing. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And he picked that card. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the master manipulator Dan Slot. Uh, Dan, I gotta ask about that. Is that like a method to kind of get a a pure kind of creation out of someone that you might use, as opposed to like, okay, here's where it's eventually gonna go, and it might kind of like pervert the process in a way, and you would rather something that is completely pure. What is the what's exactly the thinking behind that? I want I want people to have fun. Um, I think one of the best uh, writers we had at Marvel for collaboration was Jeff Loeb. That Jeff Loeb was a master at working with his artist that when he writes for Tim Sale, he writes for Tim Sale. When he writes for Ed McGinnis, he writes for Ed McGinnis. You look at his scripts, they're completely different for every artist he works with. He knows what his artists want to draw And a lot of his job isn't just telling a great story. It's lobbing that watermelon over the plate so they can take a big, long swing at it. And then as artists, they look awesome. You know, like, oh, wow, he knocked that one out of the park. That artist is great. That's part of the magic. If you know who your guy is um, or gal, just teeing them up so they can do their best work and writing stories that are stories they want to draw and that you as a team are happy with. Um, everything you see in Surfer, um, Mike and I asked if we could be called storytellers, that that's our credit in all the Surfer credits. We're not credited as uh, writer and artist. We're, co- we're co-credited as storytellers. Um, I never designed an alien in the entire run of Surfer. I would, you know, have these notes to Mike going, on this planet, everybody looks the same, but you get to decide what they look like. Or here's a planet of Galactus survivors, and it's a different person from every planet, so no two aliens look the same. You know, but have fun designing. Um, And then true Marvel style, I would see what he gave me, and I'd go, ooh, and then you'd get a, a joke like we had in Surfers 1 through the first three issues. There's an alien who has a brain for a head. There's there's no eyes on it. He's just got this brain. And he's. Uh, I looked at him and, okay, his name is Mr. Migdala. And Mr. Migdala, <laughs> at one point, he's running around being super intelligent and telling everyone what to do. And then in issue three, you find out he's led them completely the wrong way. He has no idea what he's doing. And the, he turns to them and they're like, what, we, we passed all these lifeboats for the last, you know, like 20, you know, hallways? Like, Mr. Migdala. And he kind of goes, 
you know, when you have a giant brain for a head, people just think, you know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. (laughs) And that joke wouldn't have happened if I hadn't let Mike go crazy and design whatever aliens he wants. And then by the time we get to issue three, go, oh, I got a good joke for Mr. Migdala. So it's, it's very much back and forth. And sometimes you're leading and sometimes they're leading. Uh, and you get all kinds of there's I never designed an alien. I never designed a spaceship. I never designed, uh, you know, the architecture of a different alien culture. But I would give notes to Mike about what kind of things I needed for the story. Like when we're on the hologram planet, it needs to be fun future utopia like this is a place you want to go to this is the height of a civilization and it's all fun 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 and then he gave us a very jetsony weird pop art 60s weird fun planet and i'm like this is great when we're on um planet prime where everyone is perfect at one skill the um that's the world of uh warrior one where you get to also street performer one and ice cream maker one and everyone is like the best at their thing. He made this weird looking society of these like nine foot tall purple people with these weird mouths. And I I just, I love them. Those are all the people of planet prime. And you, you start falling in love with all these different people and you want to see them back like Mr. Plorp, you know, (laughs) I was just thinking about the, like, how amazing that is in terms of letting of, of saying Mike you design these things because now I, I can't imagine every artist wants to be the one designing wholesale dozens and dozens and dozens of different things sometimes they you know I, I think you know having talked to different artists some want a little bit more from the writer some want less and I'm sure that is also a case-by-case thing like working with Stuart Eminen on Amazing Spider-Man um, when I when I was working with John Romita Jr. on Amazing Spider-Man, I had choreographed all these Spider-Man fights. And John Jr. reached out to me and went, you know, I've been doing Spider-Man for decades. The, I think I have a, a chore, choreography for a fight that I'd like to do. And I was like, hey, as long as Norman Osborn gets away by page three, do whatever you want. Have fun. And I got these gorgeous choreographed fight sequences from John Jr. And when I was writing uh, for Stuart, I was kind of leaving that kind of freedom. And then I got this note back from Stuart going like, but what are they doing? Like choreograph this for me. Like, tell me what they're doing and I will draw that. So everybody's machine different. And the trick is if you get to work with one artist long enough, you start developing this, this synchronicity, you start developing, you know, the goal is to become that couple that nobody wants to play Pictionary with. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you're like, how are, how are, get out of each other's heads. And working on Surfer with Mike and Laura, we got to work together on 29 issues, 30 stories. Uh, that one oversized issue, we were all like a unit together. And, and we were able to pull off a trick that we couldn't have pulled off unless it was the same creative team working you know, arm in arm all the way through, which is one of the big reveals of, I want to say, Surfer issue 13 um, of both volumes where there's time travel involved. And we were able to get an extra page of uh, story for one issue because we were able to lift 
a previous page from three years ago when a past surfer meets a future surfer. We just lifted the page whole cloth. Uh, it didn't even need to be relettered as we went full circle to that scene again. And it, you don't miss a beat because it looks exactly the same style and art and and level of you know craftsmanship from the page before and the page after but we just lifted that straight from the digital file of the the surfer from the previous volume <laughs> what why I was going to say that that this is like a specifically excellent way to jump into issue 1 is because it, as as I'm re, as I'm rereading this, just like Ryan, I'm looking at these pages and like, how does Dan ask this team of artists to essentially create the impossible? Like there are certain beats in this story where it is specifically like written like this is a thing that is inherently hard to visualize, and so that that's why it actually kind of makes perfect sense. Is like like you're talking about Dan that. That symbiosis where it's like, you know, it, it is actually a, a kind of give and take in terms of what the story is asking, what they're bringing to the table, what and then kind of how what they're bringing to the table informs the story, which is so, so cool. When when you get to that double page reveal of the Empiricon. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> that is yeah. nuts. And that's Mike Allred killing himself for weeks on, on this double page spread. And whenever I would write Mike a scene like that, I would promise him a couple issues later, you get to uh, the next volume, there's a sequence where it's Dawn and Surfer going through a black void of space where there are no stars. <laughs> it's like, I am, I am building you a vacation <laughs> into this story because I know I killed you a couple stories ago. And you'll notice at the end of the first volume, they go to a place outside in the void where creation hasn't happened yet. So everything is white. <laughs> people are like, what an interesting concept. And you're like, yeah, it's called not killing Mike Allred. It's called letting the man rest. That Empiricon spread, like I, it, it, I, I've read the story. I've read this, the, the first issue, the, this first volume, probably like two or three times now. And it, it hits me every time like you you get that reveal and it's so incredible so mind-bogglingly detailed is mike does mike do digital or is he on paper mike is a paper man he is mike. on the page um but to be fair like he so loved working on surfer that laura said whenever she tried to take him away from the art table it was like such the ultimate Mike book to work on in the Marvel Universe that he would start making baby sounds. <laughs> like, ah! You're like, no, dinner. Ah! <laughs> and that, that just comes through, man. It's, um, it was a joy. It was a joy working on that. That was like dessert uh, whenever we'd work on Surfer. Like, if you're Marvel, you want those Spider-Man issues and you want them coming out on time. Where's the next Spider-Man issue? And you're like, I'm working on it. I'm full of stress and I want to make this the best thing ever. And I'm like, ah. And then it was like, ah, surfer issue. Ah. <laughs> oh, this is so much fun. We're in space, space, space. <laughs> Dan, what was the, I'm looking at the other books that were coming out at the, like the same week as 
as Silver Surfer number one, um, and, and just the time period. I know big releases were like All New Ghost Rider number one. This is March 26, 2014 for the first issue. Um, there's an Iron Patriot book. We're reprinting Miracle Man. There's A-plus a X, Uncanny Avengers, all kinds of stuff. Um, what do you remember about, if anything, the Marvel Universe at the time and where your headspace was when you started going into the book? Oh, man, it was crazy because at the same time we were doing that, I was bringing back Peter Parker from the dead um, and you were getting the all new Spider-Man. Um, I, w- I was like my brain was not just bifurcated. It was quadrificated. It was just like blah. I was I was Peter was back as Spider-Man at the same time we were doing um uh, a side series called uh, Learning to Crawl, which was about like the first 60 days of being Peter. I was doing that with Ramon Perez. And I was also, because we had to get ahead of it, I was also writing uh, months ahead uh, the first ever Spider-Verse. Uh, so I was doing Surfer, Spider-Verse, all new Peter, pa- all new Spider, Amazing Spider-Man, and Learning to Crawl all at the same time. And going slowly mad. <laughs> you know you know that Simpsons where it's like Homer's in hell and it's like, you like donuts? Have all the donuts. It was that. It was like, <laughs> I love working in comics. I can never stop. <laughs> how, 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 how. I can see that image in my head right now. <laughs> It was it was great. I mean, it's a great problem to have. It was a very uh, my diamond shoes are too tight kind of problem. Like, oh, I get to I get to write every Spider Man ever. I get to write Spider Man going up against his first supervillain. I get to introduce Silk. Um, I get to you know have Surfer go off into cosmicy adventures with Don Greenwood. It was a very good problem to have. I will never do that again. there's a the there's the page when dawn is teleported onto the empiricon in the first issue uh, which i love and i I was gonna you know reading it again i was gonna ask about what notes you had for those those creatures because some of them feel very like like in the best way dance lot cool like all right do this thing here but based on what you said about just letting mike just go crazy and and design everything you really, even in the first issue, it feels like you two are one mind. Oh, yeah. No, it's like, might go crazy. But for those aliens, they had very specific needs. Like, I knew um, the alien in the cell next to Dawn, she was going to need to give them her uh, her food. And then they were going to use, like, vomit acid to go through the walls. So, but, so there would be tiny notes. Like, this is the old crusty alien who their their son takes his mantle. This is the, you know, the alien who is going to eat Dawn's food and vomit super acid, which is how they're all going to escape. And But then, you know, Mike gets to create Mr. Plorp and uh, battle on, you know. So it, there's stuff in there, but I didn't know, like, who was going to be the floor below Dawn or who was going to be above Dawn or... Um, I just knew that by the time Surfer was going to get onto the Empirican to to save Dawn, he was going to be silvered down and look like Norrin Rad, and Dawn will have already freed herself and everyone she was trapped with, which causes 
nothing but problems, which was going to be fun. Uh, and I knew that her first line was going to be like, together. When they were together, like I knew his first line when seeing Dawn was going to be, I have no idea who that is. Like that, this thing that we're going to build into the greatest romance of his, you know, existence was going to start with uh, like, who's that? I love that line too. That's the final line of the first issue. And it's, it's just so perfect. And and I knew her first line to him in person because she wasn't going to see him as a silver surfer. She was going to meet. She was going to assume that he was one of the like hundreds of aliens that she's freed. She's com- comforting him and going. He's like, I'm I'm Norton. He's like, Hi, Norton. My name is Don Greenwood, and I'm here to save you. Like that was going to be her first line to him, which was going to be like, What? Huh? What? I, I miss them. I miss them so much. I am never working on them again unless it's with Mike Allred or it would feel wrong. It would just feel wrong. But Dan, when you're working on a story like this, like how much – because it is so – because it's such a, a kind of puzzle box story in that way where everything is so precise. Things are laid in from issue one. That will come back so many issues later. Um w- how much of this did you have um, – did you kind of sit down and brainstorm for your pitch on the story versus how much is just coming from like a lifetime of reading comics and being a fan and just being like, oh, that would be a cool thing. And then you know, years later, like, oh, this would be a cool little note to play in, in a Silver Surfer story or whatever it is. How, how does that all come together? A little of one thing, a little of another. Like there were Surfer stories we didn't get to. Um, but I think the best stuff you work on when you're done, it's good that you've left things on the table. Um, it's better than like running out of ideas and you're like, ah, no, it's always good to go. Yeah, we, we could have, we could have gone a few more issues. Um, we had a, a deal with Brevoort where, um, we were supposed to end on issue 12, uh, Mike would would have liked to have gone to 15 because he liked the symmetry of 15 for the first volume and 15 for the final volume. Um, I was just worried about having two issues after issue 12 because um, we could have ended on 12. I could have put a bow on it, but I really wanted two issues to wrap up to pay off on all the hidden secrets we laid over the years. And we had a deal with Tom because he said we could end at 12 we could go to 14 and I'm like, I'll make a deal with you. If we win the Eisner, uh, let us go to 14. And he's like, sure. If you win the Eisner, you can go to 14. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So we owe everybody out there. uh, We owe them the universe because everyone was so nice to us. And that Eisner is what got us those last two issues. So thank you, everyone. Yay. Well, I mean, well deserved. Well ah. deserved. Uh, um, the the second issue also has a very. It's not called out, but it's the first time when Don hears Norin say to me, "My board," which pays off so well throughout the series in doing something that had never been done before. Giving feeling like the the board has its own character named. To me. To me. I just, everyone now is getting the uh, omnibus in Spain. So I'll get to see all these people in Spain freaking out about it, which is lovely. <laughs> and people in Spain reading it for the first time. And in Spain, the board is named Ami. 
<laughs> I love that. <laughs> Ami. Yeah. Ami the board. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, but no, he's he's Toomey. He's Toomey the board. Because that's what she thinks his name is. And the fact that she names him, there's power in the name and in naming someone. She has a special relationship with the board. They they all do. Um, he does become the third character in the book. He's somewhere in between your best friend and your dog, or unless your dog is your best friend. But he's 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 in there. Uh, I I love Toomey so much. There's stuff that Toomey won't put up with. Um, and there's stuff where Toomey will shame you. He will finger wag you if he is not happy with things. Um, I uh, I love them. Uh, there's the the penultimate Toomey bit. Um, I knew we nailed it when Ryan uh, read it on the subway and cried and tweeted about that. <laughs> Look, I love this run a lot, Dan. You know that. Um, but we'll move into issue number three. We're sort of following as Norrin is trying to figure out the, the Never Queen and, and what's going on with the Empiricon and everything. And they have the heart. And the heart turns into a toy monkey. Why? Why a toy monkey? Why not a toy monkey? <laughs> <laughs> that is the universal question. Why not a toy monkey? Don't don't step on my toy monkey, man. No, I lo- I love it. It's just I remember rereading it. And I'm like, huh? I don't. What a choice. I love it. But- did not expect it. We were we were gonna do a, one of the beats that fell on the table, you know, that fell off the table or whatever on the floor. There you go. Was when Norn was silvered down. Uh, he, when he looked at the heart, it would be something from Planet Ran, from his youth, from his past. Like it, it's however you look at it and perceive it. Um, but that we ran out of track, <laughs> so we we're like, no. The important thing is for how Dawn sees it. And the, and it does change again when she's holding it. It changes to her front gate. It changes to yeah. like a number of things that are important to her. And we do see the toy monkey again. Uh, yeah. So it's um, a lot of it was just the randomness of it. It could have easily been a garden gnome or a pink flamingo, but uh, it was the toy monkey. I part of me wants to say that's a Mike Allred thing, where it like turns into something ludicrous. Have fun, Mike Allred. <laughs> I love the cover he did for that. He just was so in love with the toy monkey. He made that the cover three. It's like you're so used to thinking of all these great Silver Surfer covers through all the eras. You know, oh look, he's fighting Thor on on Asgard's Rainbow Bridge, and oh my God, now Thanos and ah, all the toy monkey, and that's Mike and Myron. Just like what? <laughs> what is that? What are you doing? I miss this book. Don't we? We we really all do. Um, the uh, there's a bit also in in three has got a lot of really funny moments. Um, as I you know go back to it, there's a Three Stooges bit. There's also the um, the the power cosmic being convenient little exchange, which is just so great. It is one of my great regrets of working on Silver Surfer. I do not have many. But I was going to do – it was on my list of, of things, to, the boxes to tick off was I was going to have a scene when he's Norville Rappaport hanging out with the dad in the Greenwood Inn in the past watching Three Stooges and it just being like, you know, I love this. Just to go full circle <laughs> from the three – and then it was one of those things where like 
That's not an important beat. We don't need it. We don't have to go full circle. There's more important things to do on the page. I'm like, fine. It's the story of Norrin and Dawn. It's not about the Three Stooges. Fine. So if you and Mike ever get back together, maybe for a charity thing, you could do a little bit where he's watching Three Stooges and you can scratch that itch. I would, I would, it's one of the many itches, but on the whole, we put a bow around this and I'm very happy with start to finish. But the, uh, the whole bit of the, the power cosmic, that whole exchange was just lovely. Uh, and a lot of that comes from Tom Brevoort. Tom always wants you to approach things with fresh eyes. Like, she's never seen this before. Like, try this scene again. And remember, Dawn hasn't seen any of this stuff. How is she going to react? And it, it's stuff that helps where you go, you know what? She should wonder why she's not breathing, why she's breathing in outer space. And then what? what is the answer to that? And then that became a whole thing. And, the, you know, people don't see the unseen hand of the editor. Uh, that That sequence, that two-panel sequence was something where Tom, you know, really went to work as an editor and massaged it. Like, went back and forth going, give, give me some more. The timing's not just right. You know, do this again. There, Comics is a collaborative medium. You don't get to alpha dog it. You know, you, the writer, the penciler, the anchor, the, the colorist, the letter, the editor, that you're all working together to make this one thing. Um, something that Surfer had that most books don't, um, and it might have also been part of the reason the sales weren't as good as they were, is that we took the time, deadlines be damned. So this book came out very infrequently. Like, you look at when a book like Ms. Marvel came out, which was a contemporary of Surfer, and Ms. Marvel would be lapping Surfer in issues. We would put out, like, eight or nine in a year. Um... But when they left, we were so happy. <laughs> we were just like, yay, look at that. Oh, this is beautiful. Like, Tom would, wasn't happy about that. But, <laughs> but we were all very happy with the issues when they left. I think that point about, about Tom and, and Tom, you know, working as an editor to infuse it with this sense of a first-time experience, specifically with this character, specifically with Dawn, and like allowing the audience to see so much of the story through her eyes or allowing those colors to really come through is so special. And I think it gets to the heart of what I love most about this book. And for me, it is, it is the perfect like synthesis of the marvel universe in a way for me because it is so wild it's so out there it's so beautifully colorful but it is so uh full of wonder in that way and i just love that one of the greatest gifts of working on this series was the fans that we had on surfer were diehard fans people who loved this book for what it was uh you know with its own tone and timber people just who gravitated to this book so fiercely loved it. And when you'd meet them at shows, they would have tattoos of it on their arms. They would be in perfect Don Greenwood cosplay. It would just be so, oh, you just, ah. They'd, they'd tell you their your favorite parts. The thing that I really liked about this was this was a lot of people's first Marvel book because their significant other, whether it's a guy or a girl, would so love it, they would force their non-comic reading significant other to read it. 
So we, we got so many people where this was their first Marvel book. This was their first comic. Um, and parents were doing that with their kids. We got many people telling us, this is our bedtime story. Like parents who are comic book readers would read this to their kids and it would be their first Marvel. So we were getting, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, wives, husbands, uh, daughters, sons, all getting this as their first time. Um, it's 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 weird when people like they meet surfer like this and then they love surfer and then they go back and they read older surfer stuff and they're like, oh, my God, he's so serious. He's so sad. He's so what? Oh, my God. The board doesn't talk. <laughs> was, was, was there any any nervousness from anybody really about the the change in tone for your series versus everything that we'd seen from surfer in the past i find like whenever i work on a marvel book um i try to have my voice for that character or that feel for that book so when you read my gla it's very different from my spider-man and that's very different from my surfer and that's very different from avengers the initiative you know, like you read Avengers, the initiative and oh, my God, MVP's head just got blown off. What the hell's <laughs> going on? Or you, you read, you know, a character like Leather Boy in Great Lake Avengers. And you're like, what is this? Um, <laughs> We're going to have to do an episode with you about that one, too. <laughs> yeah. Or or the, you know, the, the, the short lived thing series I did with Andre DeVito. It's just the love letter to the Bronze Age. So it's like everything I want to have a different voice in every project I'm doing. And you get these people going like, okay, I read your surfer and I liked it. I do not like this Avengers the Initiative book, you know. And then you get the flip side, like people going, wow, I really like your Spider-Man. This Silver Surfer book, it feels infantile to me. And I'm like, yeah, it's a different vibe. And that's one of the things I've always loved about the Marvel Universe. It's the same universe that has Punisher and it also has Howard the Duck, you know. And then over here is Thor. The, it's so radically different, this patchwork world. Um, you, you were talking about like awe and wonder and like this being a, an intro to the Marvel Universe, this being the first time maybe you met Galactus or the first time, you know, you see this part of the cosmos. So much of the Marvel Universe is fun once you get into it, once you've read a million comics that you kind of know this world better than you know your U.S. history. You know, why weren't you studying in school? Why were you reading all those comics? No, but like when you know the flames of Faltine better than if I say, who's the 17th president? You don't know, do you? You had to Google, didn't you? <laughs> but but you know darn well, you know, if I say, you know, whatever strange thing, if I go ego the living planet, you know exactly what that looks like in your head because that's where you spent all your energy and focus. Um, and the problem is when you think like that all the time, these things become normal. The idea for you as a reader of a giant planet with a talking face on it, the moment that becomes normal to you and you go, oh, I want to see Ego the Living Planet again. You know, I want to I see what happens when he shows up in Thor. I want to see what happens when he shows up in Fantastic Four. Now suddenly he's not Ego the Living Planet anymore. He's, you know, your friend Jed from down the block. So a big, a big job of a big thing of the job is to make it wonderful again, not just weird and familiar, but oh my, it's a planet with a giant head. Well, that's incredible. 
you know. I'd like to see it show up and try to talk with the Death Star. Hello? Hello? You know. <laughs> uh, Dan, I love when you just start waxing on about comics and Marvel. It just makes me happy. I'm just thankful for this. Um, let's move on to issue four. Uh, I got to keep this train rolling. Uh, uh, we, what's interesting for thinking about this one for me was the guardians guest star here and this is right around the same time the first guardians movie came out so it's interesting point of like you know convergence even though this guardians team had venom and captain marvel on the team um it's it, it was it was weird but also really fun to see that and remind us again that this book is such a deeply connected to the rest of the marvel universe it, that was yeah that was very brave of me to put the guardians in the book the month the movie was coming out <laughs> i should be i should be awarded for that bravery <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time because I'm shameless. Oh, there's a new Avengers movie showing up? I wonder who's going to show up in Spider-Man this month. Hmm. <laughs> I would just, yeah, yeah. No, but it was it was fun. It was fun to have the Guardians. But the, to me, the fun of that that issue, that was to, to lead breadcrumbs for you to please pick up the book. But the real fun of it is... One of the things, when I was talking to Tom at the initial surfer pitch was I really didn't like it when people had Silver Surfer show up and go, what is this thing you call a hot dog? How strange this is. And I'm like, he's been on Earth for over a decade. He was trapped here by Galactus. He couldn't get out. And he has cosmic senses he, he knows everything about... He can't stand Earth. He can't wait to be gone from Earth. That would be like, I can't wait once this quarantine is really over. I'm going to go outside and live, man. I'm going to live. Like, there's no tomorrow. I'm going to skip in the grass. I'm going to shake people's hands. I'm going to eat Shake Shack again. That surfer, <laughs> surfer was trapped on Earth behind Galactus's barrier. And now Dawn, he has to take this Earthling back to Earth because he promised. And it's like the last place he wants to go. And she makes that Wizard of Oz reference and then turns to him and go, oh, oh, that was from Wizard of Oz, this Earth movie. And he's like, I know. I've seen every episode of Friends. Every time it airs, I pick up the air signals. I go, oh my God, I know Ross and Rachel were on a break. I know. I know everything. My favorite thing about The Wizard of Oz is the little bit that he does a couple pages later with the Tin Man gag. I <laughs> I chortled at that. And and we come full circle to that because later when they come back to Earth like a second or third time, they all sit down and watch Wizard of Oz and he goes... You know, I know this. She's like, I know you've seen every transmission of Wizard of Oz, but have you ever watched it with someone? And you see the whole family watching it, and he's singing along too. He's never had that experience. And that's what it means to know Don Greenwood, that you can see the thing that you've seen a thousand million times, and now that you're seeing it with a friend, it's different. Um, that That's Surfer in a nutshell. I keep coming back to this point, and I've, it's kept popping into my mind throughout this conversation. There's a moment in the final issue of the second volume uh, of issue number 14, Silver Surfer 2016, 
the surfer has this moment where and I'm looking at it now. I brought it up where he says, though, this is the end of our story, Don, know this. I'll never forget you. Goodbye. And it really connected with me. And honestly, it's just so cool now to reread the very beginning of this story and see the seeds that were planted so early on. That's the coolest thing for me because somehow, some way, it all just plays so beautifully throughout this entire thing. Is that something you're conscious of, Dan? Is that just like a product of why you're Dan Slot? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mom. No, um, <laughs> it's, it's really hard to take credit for anything on Surfer in a vacuum because it was such a... Uh, a love affair with me and Mike and Laura and and Tom and the assistant editors and the poor letterers who would have to letter this very quickly. Uh, and it was one of those things where a lot of times you're racing the clock. A lot of times, you know, you're so many people are counting on you, like if you're in a crossover or how the Marvel Universe all fits together like a puzzle. Um your your eyes are in so many different directions and you're it's a juggling act um it's it's fun when you get to tell something very personal and off to the side and something you're all uh you know v- deeply invested in um there there's i want to say it's Lawrence Block there's a a writer um and he has this weird metaphor about how your life is a raft and every time you are telling a story, you're you're burning parts of it off. You're chopping away parts of it to use it. So you have to keep going out and living life. So you keep building the raft, or you're just going to sink. Um, I look at so much of uh, the Silver Surfer run where I have identical twin sisters. So I was using some of that. Uh, the Greenwood Inn. Uh, I gave Mike tons of reference. It's my grandma's house on Cape Cod. There's no Anchor Bay. Anchor Bay's a fictional city. It's Cape Cod, where I spent, like, all my childhood. Um, there, there's so much stuff where you, you, you burn away stuff from your past. You use it for fuel for your stories. Uh, so there is a lot of love in there. I am so stupid <laughs> that I did not realize until late in the game that uh, Mike Allred had made me Reg Greenwood. I had not realized that. Um, when you look at Reg Greenwood and the way he looks in the first five issues, I look at that and I, I go, that's not me. <laughs> but then later over time it morphed a little more and more and I'm like, you put me in the book. And I do not like that. I do not like being inserted into comics. I I usually ask my artist like, do not do that, dude. Please do not even like put my name like on canopies. Please do not, you know, make that the slot restaurant in the background. I I am not a fan of that. I I I my I think it takes away from like you look at it and you go. It takes you out of the story. I'd rather be invisible. Um, I really don't like being drawn into comics because it, it's the opposite of Dorian Gray. As I get older and fatter and lose more hair, I, I get to open this comic where I look, no, no. Why does he still look like that? No. There's like a comic I got drawn into in the 90s. It haunts me. 
Um, I don't like that at all. Leave me out of it, man. Let, let my work speak. <laughs> so if I knew Mike had been doing that, I would have asked him to please stop. Don't do that. But I didn't recognize it. And, and to this day, Brevoort does not believe me. He goes, oh, you knew that was you. I'm like, I had no idea. But yeah, <laughs> he drew me into the book, man. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of me in Surfer. That too. Um, and you're like... Yeah, I remember like Hickman was really nice. He um he said, Yeah, yeah, you're doing a great job on Spider Man, but this is the book everyone's gonna remember Dan Slot for. And I'm like, Oh, well that's nice. <laughs> it's very Jonathan esque. So you we, we mentioned a bunch of the names. Uh, I wanted to make sure we gave all the proper credit. Co storytellers, Dan Slot and Michael Allred, colors by Laura Allred, letters uh in the first five issues by Clayton Cowles, and then you mentioned issue number eleven and Joe Sabino as the letterer. Uh before we let you go, can you give uh the listeners a little taste of what what is in issue number 11 of silver surfer and why they have to keep reading uh the book whether it's on marvel unlimited or get those other collections it is a story where dawn and the surfer are stuck in a time loop and the issue is laid out like a mobius strip it is a mobius comic strip um we got extra pages for Marvel. It's not a special issue. It's not a issue 50 or 100 or an annual. It's just, we wanted to do this weird thing and we needed more track. And Marvel is the house of ideas where they let you do cool stuff. Um, so it's it's an oversized issue. Uh, it, it got us the Eisner. I'm very proud of that. It's, it's a Mobius comic strip with... I hate myself for saying this, a twist. Uh, <laughs> I did, the words were coming out of my mouth and I'm like, uh, I, but I, it, there is a twist. Uh, you know, how do you get out of a Mobius strip? Um, and when you're holding the comic in paper, it's a, a completely different experience. Um, and I'd also say, even after you've read issue 11, Go back and try to read areas, this is going to sound very weird, that you can't reach. There's a a section of the book you can't logically reach. And the art is there, and the lettering's there, and the story's there. And if you go and you read that hidden segment, you will gain new insights into the the member of New Haven known as uh, Founder Keen. Yeah, go back and read your Surfer 11. There's an unreachable part, and that's part of the beauty of it. Hmm. Damn it, Dan. That was real good. That's very cool. Um, that is a perfect way to wrap up this little conversation. Dan, I hope we can get you on to talk about more stories. This was, like, as wonderful as I had hoped it would be, you know, getting to revisit this with you. Oh, dude, guys, thanks for having me. Uh, be sure to keep eyes out for the remaining half of Iron Man 2020. Issue 4 is going to be coming out soon uh, in June, end of June. And Empire uh, 1, 2, and 3 are all coming out in July. And uh, Fantastic Four Empire Zero is going to be one of the most pivotal issues of my FF run. Something important is going to happen in there beyond even the empire of it all. Something that will have lasting ramifications for the Fantastic Four for forever. 
you need to read Fantastic Four Empire Zero. And then Fantastic Four issues will tie into Empire. And we've seen two uh, new Fantastic Four members are jumping in with uh, Wolverine and Spider-Man are going to be in the book for three issues during Empire. Heck yeah. We're going to be talking about all this stuff real soon because new comics are back. They're back! It's a good time. Yes! <laughs> uh, all right, Dan. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Dan. All right, big thanks again to Mr. Dan Slot. What a good time. Anyway, that's a wrap for this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marquez, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And if you look very closely into Silver Surfer number one, you can see a little cameo of our very own Brad Bart. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Mark. Your universe.